with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. Welcome to After 9. I'm your host, Eric Allen. <clears throat> Today we have our three amigos uh, on the panel. Peter Ewart, James Steedle, and uh, Herb Martin. <clears throat> a little slow on the draw there this morning. I was daydreaming. So we've got a number of uh, topics we want to discuss today. We're going to start off with Peter, and uh, not right away, but fairly quickly here, and just giving us an overview of the BC Rail, actually uh, the selling or leasing, a 99-year lease of BC Rail to CN Rail, and the ramifications of that, and how it's impacting, in our opinion anyway, uh, business uh, all over North Central British Columbia. And we get into other aspects of it, the rail car shortages, uh, small mill towns that are having all kinds of problems, and and we got other uh, things to discuss beyond that. But we want to start off with the BC Rail because that leads us into a number of other issues. Go ahead, Peter. 20 years ago in 2003, the Gordon Campbell Liberal government announced that BC Rail's operating infrastructure was to be sold off to a private interest and that, as it later turned out, the railbed and track and right-of-way would be leased for 990 years to the successful bidder CN Rail, who ended up being successful with the bid. Anyway, in effect, BC Rail was to be privatized, contrary to what Campbell had promised in the 2000 election campaign and before. All kinds of promises were made by the Campbell government at the, back in 2000, 2003 about the benefits of what it called this, quote, leasing of the publicly owned BC Rail and what others, of course, call a de facto sell-off. So it seems like a good time to take a look back at BC Rail before 2003 and then look at its situation today on the 20th anniversary of, this, of uh, the announcement of the sell-off. Before 2003, as a crown corporation, BC Rail had 2,320 kilometers of tracks, expanding all the way from the lower mainland up through the interior, all the way to the Peace River country in the northeast of the province. In the course of its development over 85 years, the railway played a crucial role in the knitting together of the province and its economic and social development, especially of the interior and north. Every year from 1978 to 2000, the publicly owned railway was, was profitable. Indeed, it is interesting to note that the couple of years leading up to the 2003 sell-off, where it was supposedly not profitable, were all during the time of the B.C. Liberals being in office. Some critics believe the books were cooked to justify the sell-off. Back before 2003, there were three main railways in British Columbia. These were the privately owned railways CN and CP Rail, and the publicly owned railway, BC Rail. Supposedly, they were all competing with each other, and there were some alternatives for suppliers, such as the lumber mills and mines of the interior. However, after 2003, there were just two railways left, CN and CP, with the sale of BC Rail. With the sale of BC Rail, monopolization in the rail industry had been significantly ramped up. In effect, BC Rail had just become another cog in a much larger North American wheel. It's 2,320 kilometers of track, now just being a small fraction of CN's 32,831 kilometers of North American track. 
The de facto owner of BC Rail was no longer the government of British Columbia, but rather eventually North American financiers like Bill Gates and the super monopolies and international asset managers like BlackRock and the Vanguard Group. Having a strategy for British Columbia like that of the publicly owned BC Rail was swallowed up and subsumed into the strategy of the financier-controlled CN Rail, which has at its main aim profits for its billionaire shareholders and not the interests of the province. In recent years, CN has made huge profits. In the last quarter, $1.4 billion in, in, in profit. Yet it has chosen to suspend its rail service from Williams Lake to Squamish, effectively cutting off many communities and local industries from rail service. Then there are reports of other stretches of track in the Peace River region deteriorating, or as in Tumbler Ridge, mothballed off and on. In addition, mills such as in Taylor, B.C., and other businesses in the interior in the north are experiencing severe shortages of CN railcars to the extent that they have had to close or curtail production. Last year, the head of the Forest Products Association of Canada didn't mince his words. In his opinion, rail service in Western Canada has been, quote, extremely poor. Indeed, bad rail service has been blamed for contributing to high inflation as products aren't getting to market on time. So what did BC gain with the selling off of BC Rail? Well, there's a price tag, $1 billion, but uh, that's questioned by, by other critics who say that it was substantially less. Uh, you had the creation of the Northern Development Investment Trust, which I think James is going to talk about, uh, you know, from, from some of that funding. Um, but uh, another, another so-called benefit was that uh, BC Rail was hooked up to a North American rail network. But in fact, it already was hooked up. It was already uh, connected. Before, it was a big player in a little pond. Now it was a little player in a big pond. On the other hand, what we've lost in terms of the sale of BC Rail, we've lost the strategic control of vital provincial rail infrastructure. We have loss of revenue from BC Rail operations, where it was long considered to have been a cash cow for the province. In effect, BC Rail has become a North American part of a North American monopoly strategy, not a British Columbia-based one. The, furthermore, the, what's happened also is a reduction of competition between rail companies, which has increased monopolization, it means less power for suppliers and customers and communities. In fact, customers are over a barrel in terms of rail costs. And then there's a the closure of a key part of the rail line, you know, from Williams Lake to Squamish, cutting off many communities and industries from the former rail service. And then there's the acute shortage of rail cars resulting in mill closures and curtailments, as well as other is industries and businesses being affected. In effect, summing up the last 20 years, in my opinion, the selling off of BC Rail has been a bad deal for the province. I don't see the positive. Good. Thanks, Peter. <clears throat> yeah, this uh, this is a big issue and somewhat hard to understand because uh, BC Rail being a provincial government was never never crossed the borders uh, to go into another adjoining province like Alberta or down into the U.S. Uh, and so therefore it didn't come under the uh, Canadian government uh, rules and regulations governing railways and the CNCP did. The other thing is that 
you're shipping down to Vancouver, uh, traffic to Vancouver, they used to connect with Union Pacific, uh, Burlington Northern, CN if they chose to, CP, and I think that was about it at the time. But these railways over time started uh, giving them less and less money for hauling the car from Prince George to Vancouver and basically starved them for revenue. <clears throat> a lot of people don't realize that, but all the revenue on a freight car is divided, what they call, uh, by divisions, and the, the originating carrier gets a bulk of it, and the uh, delivering carrier to the customer in the U.S. gets the other, and the railways in between get a certain percentage. <clears throat> and that's how they divide their revenue, but they wouldn't pay any more to the B.C. Rail than a fixed sum, and uh, so that was one of the nails in the coffin. And then there's a number of others. But, you know, the other thing we don't look at is BC Rail is just a shell of what it used to be, and that means we had a lot less people on the payroll there. You might think there's more, but there isn't. And there's a lot less people on the CN payroll since they were or went public a number of years ago. CN used to be owned by the Canadian government, and it was sold a number of years ago to become a publicly traded company. And uh, everything kind of went downhill since then, in my opinion. You know, I just I just don't see it. It's two different concepts altogether. So that's what we're up against. And and some of the revenue uh, from uh, the sale of BC Rail went to what we're going to talk about, which is the Northern Development the Initiative Trust. James wants to make a few comments on that. I've got a few, and I'm sure Herb's got something to say. So we'll start with you, James. Yeah, the great, great overview, Peter. Really, really enjoyed that uh, that history. I think you touched on all the the major points there of the sale. Uh, you know how how it was profitable since 1978, and and I think it lost money a little bit uh, before that. And you know, with the Deese Lake extension, which was a big mistake. But prior to that, you know, like Peter said, that was that was basically a tool to build British Columbia. You know, if it wasn't for BC Rail, we wouldn't have that rail line from Vancouver to Prince George. Basically, the North would be dependent on these East-West kind of national uh, monopolies, and we broke that up, right? We we provided an alternative and and created competition, and kept kept everybody honest. So we got rid of that. Sold off BC Rail, and one of the things we got in exchange was the Northern Development Initiative Trust, which was uh, given given a large sum of money, I believe, to uh, generate interest on and, and fund some projects. So it funds around I don't know somewhere between eighteen and and thirty million dollars of projects every year. And uh, I, I looked through some of the net, the uh, annual reports there the last last few days, and they, they do do some interesting stuff. I mean, there's a lot of recreational things. They they provide a lot of funding to regional districts, municipalities to fix up playgrounds and and entertainment stuff. They do some uh, there's there's some like questionable stuff where they're giving money to private companies to develop uh, uh, products or to create a lot of consulting reports. Um, I'm I'm not sure exactly like what their big success story would be over the last uh, 18 years since they were created. But if you look at the mission statement, Northern Development Initiative Trust acts as a catalyst for transformative rural development that stimulates entrepreneurial activity and community resiliency. I mean, that's pretty. Those are pretty big words, but uh, it's also pretty sad to think that we got rid of the exact thing that we needed. To achieve this mission statement, you know, we we get rid of basically the the, the key strategic trans, uh, transportation uh, medium 
to allow that stuff to happen. And then we're, and we're given this kind of trust fund that essentially, and here's my big critique of NDIT, is that it functions on the same principles of privatization as the sale of BC Rail. Right? It's like, if you look at uh, how this organization is structured, it's basically another level of bureaucracy. But it's got like, I don't know, 13 staff. It's got a CEO. I don't know how much money they're spending on on administration, but it seems to me like maybe governments uh, or existing regional governments or municipal governments could do the same job. But, you know, the prevailing wisdom of neoliberal kind of vision is that we can't trust the public or the governments to do these kinds of things anymore. We have to privatize it. We have to give it to this kind of quasi-private corporate structure to... uh, dole out this money and uh, so i think uh, all together it's all kind of part of the same problem where we're getting rid of the tools of collective action uh, and swapping it out for this this belief that uh, the corporations are going to solve all our problems and, and as we see with bc rail that's clearly not happening good yeah that's uh that's basically where i'm thinking the the uh Northern Trust really, from a political point of view, was to make us feel good because they took BC Rail away and uh, <laughs> that made us feel not so good. So they, they give money to the these uh, Northern Development Trust and then they go around up and down the line and they loan money to different people to do different projects and all that and everybody thinks they're involved and everything's fine. But if you try to look at the number of jobs that were created since that started... Not very many. Well, a lot of it looks like a lot of consultants are doing pretty good. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there, there was some. I was looking through those annual reports for some stuff that I thought were good ideas, and the only thing I really saw uh, that I that I think had real potential to really help with northern resiliency was one study they funded with the dairy and Telqua on how to do some value add or some milk production in the north, which is desperately needed because all of our milk is produced down in the lower mainland. So they gave them like thirty thousand dollars to do a study, and I don't think anything ever came of it. So I mean. It seems like we're dishing out a lot of money to research stuff, and and you know the consultants are doing pretty good. Is my point there? I'm not. I haven't really seen any concrete stuff out of all the money. I mean, we've handed out probably, uh, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars through the NDIT in the past 18 years, or something like that. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what we've gotten for it. Well, we're going to go for a break. Okay, we'll go for a break now, and then we'll pick it up. Featuring the latest songs from artists in Canada and from around the world. Hosted by DJs from coast to coast to coast. 30 minutes of Canada's newest music downloaded exclusively from the Earshot's digital distribution system. For more information about the show, check out earshot-distro.ca. Listen up, Canada. This is your show on your station. Canada's Earshot Daily. Weekday nights at 11.30 here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Does Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery offer baking for diabetics? Yes. Cheesecake, carrot cake, blueberry pie, brownies, and more. The cheesecake and carrot cake each have four net carbs per slice. Blueberry pie has five, and the brownie has just three net carbs. Do these specialty baked goods taste good? People love them. What else would you like to say to our diabetic listeners? Come to Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery next to Pharmasave on 7th at Quebec. 
Are you a leader who wants to take their leadership to the next level? Do you have an emerging leader on your team who needs support? At Pivot Leader, our Leaders in Business program combines leadership training with one-on-one coaching to help leaders just like you. You'll learn how to deal with people better, handle conflict, hire and keep staff, delegate more effectively, read financial statements, and learn coaching skills to move your team along. There's a less stressful way to improve your outcomes. We can show you how. If you'd like to be a better leader, reach out to us today at pivotleader.com. Pivot Leader will help you grow, train, and sell your business. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, periods of light snow ending this afternoon, then mainly cloudy, wind up to 15K, a high of minus 9 with a wind chill this morning to minus 24. Tonight, partly cloudy, wind continuing, a low of minus 13 with a wind chill to minus 16. On Tuesday, mainly cloudy, wind from the north at 20 in the afternoon with a 30% chance of flurries, a high of minus 2 with an afternoon wind chill to minus 8. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back and we're still talking on BC Rail, which is uh, the new name for the old Pacific Great Eastern, which I always wondered about. The Pacific Great Eastern runs north and south, but anyway, that's another story. Uh, Herb, you want to talk on this subject? Uh, yeah, uh, it's just it's been over 20 years now since Gordon Campbell broke a, a promise to the voters of British Columbia and told them told us that uh, he would never sell BC Rail. Um, he got around that by 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 leasing it out for 999 years, uh, which counts as a lie in my books. Um, it's been just over 13 years since um, the BC Rail corruption case finished. And um, uh, two uh, liberal, uh, uh, two of uh, uh, Premier Gordon Campbell's liberal government aides, ministerial aides, uh, uh, pleaded uh, guilty to providing insider, insider information to interested parties in the 2003 sale of BC Rail and receiving benefits for the information, including money and a trip to an NFL game in Colorado, uh, for which they were sentenced to two years less a day. Uh, so that's, you know, it was, it was a dirty deal from day one. Uh, Peter just mentioned that, uh, uh, it turns out that the largest, uh, contributor to, um, Gordon Campbell's, uh, re-election, uh, was, uh, the head of CN, or was CN Rail. Uh, CP Rail actually, uh, got out of the uh, bidding because they considered the, uh, the whole process so flawed. Uh, at the, at, uh, after the corruption trial, uh, the NDP uh, leader at the time, Carol James, said the government should now call a full public inquiry since the case is no longer before the courts. Uh, uh, said there was, uh, the public may never hear from several high-profile witnesses whose testimony has been awaited for years. Those witnesses include former Finance Minister Gary Collins, former Transportation Minister Judith Reed, and a mystery witness whose identity the Crown was so determined to protect it went to the Supreme Court of Canada seeking a ruling on the issue. So, uh, I mean, it's it's really, uh, like like I said, it's a, it was a dirty deal from day one. It, it hasn't, it, it turns out that it hasn't helped us, uh, that it's put, jeopard, put at jeopardy uh, uh, small communities in the north like uh, Taylor, who's just lost their pulp mill, it sounds like. Um Mackenzie, who who cannot get rail cars to service the uh, uh, to uh, 
two businesses in, in McKenzie, uh, Conifex and Upper, uh, sorry, uh, East Fraser, uh, Mills. So they've, they've both had to shut down. Uh, at what point uh, do we say that uh, corporate control is, uh, uh, is, is providing a benefit? I, I remember back when Canfor and the other majors kept telling us that uh, uh, the sell of BCRL was going to enable quicker distribution of goods to Chicago, uh, that it was going to you know, streamline things, and it turns out that they were just uh, either horribly mistaken or lying. So yeah, I think it's the time has come for either the NDP to uh, hold that long-awaited inquest uh, or just maybe call up CN and say, hey, the deal's off. You, you know, you haven't uh, kept up your end of the deal and, uh, and just go back to square one. The fact that we need the uh, BC Rail I don't think is in doubt. Uh, I'm I just reading that... Uh, uh, there's a uh, city of Vancouver has signed a, a $30 million five-year deal to truck garbage up to Cash Creek again. Uh, this, that could be easily provided on the, uh, that service could be done much more efficiently and, and easily on the abandoned BC rail line that, uh, that it, that's just sitting there. Uh, we need uh, BC rail for, as an alternative to, uh, for shipping and uh, an access from Vancouver to Prince George, uh, there's uh, anyway there, there's all there's all sorts of benefits. Yeah, we, I mean when the road washed out there, there's a great example. Like we had no highway access to the Lower Mainland, and the railroad was it was fine, it was not being used. And that is a big issue. Like the, the, that, uh, various levels of government are looking into the the whole problem of uh, access, rail access to the Pacific Ocean, and uh, you know what, what those uh, slides and you know the all the, the weather sorts of things highlighted and all this is that how easily that can be broken, and uh, you know the the problem is of course. Uh, CN is contributing to the problem by shutting down the line, uh, you know, between uh, Williams Lake and Squamish. Well, it's a situation here that, <clears throat> excuse me, we should keep in mind that up until BC Rail actually got to Prince George, which I think was in the early 60s or the late 50s, uh, there was no industry that was being serviced by rail on the BC Rail. It ended in Quinell and it kind of went back and forth between Cornell and Squamish or something. So, But when it did get here and it went north, for a number of years, all its equipment and rail cars and everything was supplied by CN Rail. See, BC Rail didn't have any equipment. And so they had a railway track and a few diesels, no rail cars, very few. And so CN used to take all that traffic from the BC Rail at Prince George and take it east. Never went to Vancouver. And they had control over that because they were supplying the rail cars. Now, if you look at it later on when the uh, uh, CN takes over BC Rail, they're back to the same situation. They're supplying the rail cars, and they're taking all the traffic here in Prince George and taking it east, and uh, so the competition doesn't get it uh, in Vancouver. The Union Pacific, the yeah. Burlington Northern, the CP, they don't get any of that traffic. It all comes through here. That's where CN makes its revenue by controlling BC Rail and taking access to all the rail cars here. <clears throat> but now you you have to leap forward a bit, and we have very little business or industry 
on BC Rail to ship anything. Yeah. You know, we got some grain coming through and you don't, know, don't, worry, don't worry. Don't worry. We've got hos- we got hospital jobs and and teaching jobs and university jobs. We don't yeah. we don't yeah. need to ship anything anymore. No, well, I need to ship money to to pay for those things. The thing is, why would a industry want to set up right if they didn't if they don't have rail access right? You know, they like, won't. So. Well, yeah. well, so I don't know if we want to talk about what's going on in, in McKenzie there with East Fraser. They're a, a little uh, sawmill there that does uh, finger joining, and they have had to shut down. Uh, there's no newspaper article in this. This is what the mayor of McKenzie told Herb. They've had to shut down for two weeks because they, they don't have any rail cars to ship out their product. So this is a town that's experienced, you know, 400 job losses. It's a small town. Uh, it's been dealt some very terrible blows here, and and uh, CN Rail's dealing with another one. As far as yeah. far as uh, not providing them the transportation and the Taylor Mill is the same. So, you know, if you go back to that Northern Development Initiative Trust mission statement, you know, of, of uh, fostering Northern development and resilience, like, like there's your problem, guys. I'd like, you know, what I'd like to see them fund uh, a consultant to investigate the lack of competition in the railroad network. That would be a little bit ironic, hey? Yeah, well, there's lots of uh, calls for that, right? You know, like in northern Alberta, a whole number of municipalities have got together complaining about the rail service and the monopolization and the, the fact that the, these communities are being held at the throat, you know, by the, uh, by, by the railway companies, especially CN. Well, we're getting... Are we going for a break? Okay, we're going to go for a break now, and then we'll be back. Thanks. Join UNBC and the AgeWell National Innovations Hub for online workshops featuring Touch Tech Technologies Touch Sleep Sense. Touch Sleep Sense is a bed sensor which alerts caregivers if there's issues with a sleeping or bedridden senior so caregivers can intervene to provide support. UNBC and AgeWell want to hear your thoughts and opinions to help guide tech development and improve the well-being of aging adults and care partners in northern BC. For more information or to participate, email UNBC Text Study at unbc.ca. Ron's Hole in the Wall is now open six days a week in the Q3 Creative Business Hub. Stop by and check out his great assortment of books, magazines, DVDs, and collectibles. Tuesday through Friday between 10 and 2. Ron's Hole in the Wall is also open during the Q3 Community Market, Saturday from 8.30 to 2. Drop in regularly as always something different in store. Ron's Hole in the Wall, now open Tuesday through Saturday in the Q3 Creative Business Hub, downtown at the corner of Quebec and 3rd. Dementia Wellness Canada is your one-stop online resource for dementia information. Visit DementiaWellnessCanada.com to find the dream resources, moving, activity, meaningful inclusion with dementia. Some resources were developed in conjunction with UNBC's Centre for Technology Adoption for Aging in the North and feature places and people from Prince George. It's online dementia information at your fingertips through DementiaWellnessCanada.com. If you're totally out of shape, Trainer Kim's has a new fitness class just for you. Created for anyone new or returning to fitness after an extended period, Fitness 101 features slow-paced workouts allowing for proper instruction and form. Breaks are given for recovery and all exercises can be modified to meet every ability. If you are ready to take this first step towards a stronger, healthier body, contact Trainer Kim today by emailing trainer underscore Kim at hotmail.com. Okay. It's after nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS FM. Okay, we're back and uh, we're going to kick the BC rail around 
little bit more, CN Rail and NDIT, Northern Development Initiative Trust. I remember reading a report a number of years ago on uh, money that was given to uh, Hundred Mile House to do a study on uh, on uh, growing uh, hemp, and they had this huge study where they're going to have. Uh, it came all the way from uh, down in the Okanagan, some Armstrong, I guess, all the way from Armstrong almost to Terrace, just a huge territory. They're going to have hemp farms and all the rest of it. Anyway, that report's sitting somewhere collecting dust. And then after that, they decided somebody was going to have one in Prince George, but uh, they went at as if they started from day one. And I never heard them ever make reference to that other study that was already done and paid for by the NDIT. So I don't know if they just go through the motions of making it look like they're doing something for us or whatever, but the money that's invested is not going to create anywhere near the jobs that we lost just with closing down BC Rail or changing how it operates. I think it still runs between here and Williams Lake, uh, you know, three days a week down and three days a week back, and the same thing maybe north to Chetwin or something, but Mackenzie, you might go up there once a week. I mean, you're not going to go all the way up to Mackenzie to pick up two or three rail cars of uh, lumber or whatever. It's just yeah. not worth your while. You just won't do it. And the, the, their, what they would say is, well, check it to Prince George and load it there. But, of course, now you can't compete. So go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I think one of the things that comes out of this here is that how the you know, the BC Rail how that happened is it's an indictment of the political process itself. The fact that um, you can have a faction like this, a corporate faction, seize power and then go against the express wishes of British Columbians. Like they, they did polls and all this. I remember they did polls up here. Over seventy percent of the people were opposed to the sale of BC Rail. Yet this was pushed through. And to me, it, it, it just illustrates the problem that we have with the political process whereby this can happen, where uh, uh, decisions are, are made by uh, behind closed doors by bureaucrats and, and uh, corporate executives, uh, and the people themselves and, and their wishes are left out in the cold. Just up to say on that, Herb? Yeah, I just uh, I actually was watch, watching uh, Knowledge Network on the weekend, and they had a really interesting uh Program on the uh, the devel- birth and the development of the East India Company, and um, East India Company started uh, in India, uh, I think, in the late 1500s or early 1600s, and by the mid 1800s, uh, grown and um, uh, basically uh, through well as through corporate con- power and and uh, and influence, had basically taken over the government of uh, uh, of, of Bengal. And uh, the the uh, the chief operator uh, Robert Clive was uh, uh, was grilled back in 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 England because uh, as a result uh, of their uh, taking over the government, uh, it looks it looks like uh, history figures between two and ten million Bengalis starved to death, and uh, the, the the British government eventually had to take over the East India Company and. Um, uh, bail it out because it, it had gone bankrupt, uh, and take over all the governmental duties uh, that it, it had basically assumed. So, you know, the uh, the narrator actually one of the narrators in, in the uh, in the program said, uh, you know, this is this is a 
this is a warning to to us presently. You know, this is the danger of corporate control. That uh, if you let things go too far, uh, they will spiral out of control. And you know, we're looking. I mean, Mackenzie is looking at how how to hang on. It's it's about half of its uh, peak population. Uh, it's a viable town. It's ser- it provides uh, valuable services, and yet its uh, fundamental uh, uh, means of making a living is threatened through uh, basically corporate control. And uh, we've we've got to really start listening to what what history is telling us and what the present is telling us, and we've got to take take uh, the means of uh, the means of our economy back. The the, the yeah, I mean, uh, uh, James, I think you were going to mention something about well, just just how you know CN CN Rail or you know originally when we built the railroad across across Canada, you know, it was it was a private company fails you know that the government ends up nationalizing it so like we've been through all this before right it's like we've learned we've learned nothing from history we re- we know that having a privately owned monopoly which is what a railroad is like it's basically uh, there's no competition on that rail line you might get competition you have two railroads beside each other which you actually do have you know to some extent in in some parts of the national rail network but for the northern line here the old grand trunk pacific line i mean it's a monopoly Right? When you have a monopoly, rule number one in economics, this is first-year economics, any textbook, if you have to have a monopoly, what's called a, mon- a natural monopoly, look it up, is uh, you've got to have either regulation or you have government ownership. You can't have a privately-owned monopoly. That's that's basic economics. And, for some, and we set up laws to prevent this. Like over 100 years ago, Canada was one of the first countries in the Western world to bring in pretty clear laws against having monopolies uh, to, to benefit the consumer, right? The purpose of corporations and, and capitalism is to benefit the public. It's not to benefit, you know, a few select interests. And for some reason, the last 30 years, we kind of forgot about all this stuff, and we've been convinced that having anything owned by the public is a bad thing and that uh, to do things properly, you got to hand everything over to the corporation, the corporations, and corporate culture, and the CEOs, and and everybody that's gone to a business school. You know, we're we're basically we're just kind of focused on the short term profit. We're not considering the bigger things. So, for instance, with McKenzie, sure, maybe maybe sending a little uh, a little run up to uh, McKenzie to pick up a few rail cars is a money loser for the rail company in the short term, but in the long term, you've got. You know, a couple hundred jobs in Mackenzie that are being sustained, and a viable community. And you've you've got a viable community, and and you don't have to bail out the community with with other with other things. Okay, we're going to take a break now, and we'll be back with the same old subject. You ready? Yep. Okay, three, two, one. Le rendezvous la francophonie is on now. 25th anniversary with us. Join us on rvf.ca. Bonne fête, rendez-vous. 
Advocates Walk for Life is an in-person, family-friendly outdoor event which gives walkers and runners the opportunity to participate in peer-to-peer fundraising. Invite your friends and family to sponsor your walk and tell them about Advocates' life-saving work. Registration and full details are available at walkforlife.ca where you can also create a fundraising page to share with family and friends. This year's Advocate Walk for Life is set for Saturday, May 27th from 1230 to 4 in Clay Memorial Park. The Canadian Institute of Forestry Master's Night will take place on the afternoon of Friday, March 31st at UNBC. The Institute is looking for three NRES graduate students to make a short presentation on their current research projects. Students selected to make a presentation will receive a $100 honorarium. Presentation abstracts should be submitted to Allen at tccsolutions.ca. Submission deadline is Friday. Successful presenters will be notified during the week of March 20th. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, periods of light snow ending this afternoon, then mainly cloudy, wind up to 15K, a high of minus 9 with a wind chill this morning to minus 24. Tonight, partly cloudy, wind continuing, a low of minus 13 with a wind chill to minus 16. On Tuesday, mainly cloudy, wind from the north at 20 in the afternoon with a 30% chance of flurries, a high of minus 2 with an afternoon wind chill to minus 8. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. And uh, still with BC Rail, we're going to toot the horn a little bit and see if we can attract some attention here. Uh, woo, woo. <laughs> <laughs> so what we want to look at is, you know, it's not just the BC Rail. The whole North Central British Columbia Industry is dying off here. It's dying off there. There's nothing that I see that's replacing it. You know, you get the odd mine, but then the next mine shuts down or something. A lot of stuff now is is going to, in the future, be mined and exported through the port of Stewart. Not, it's not going to come this way. So we're not going to get that business. It's, in fact, they're trucking it from Red Chris Copper to Stewart now and exporting it from that oh, big trucks. mine there. Yeah, that's good for the environment. Yeah. So. Uh, that's that's the way that's going, and uh, anything going through Kitimat, you know, comes whistling through Prince George. It doesn't matter whether it whistles through Hinton, Alberta, or you know, uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, or or Prince George. It just goes woo woo, and it goes on to the coast, and it's exported. It doesn't create any jobs here. You know, the, the railway jobs have been decimated on BC Rail and CN in the last twenty years, probably. To the tune of 1,500 to 2,000 jobs, if you include the BC Rail intermodal. So it's huge. And even not having the BC Rail intermodal has resulted in an increase in trucking prices, which results in an increase of groceries in the grocery store because it's cost more to get it here. And this goes on. We have containers now that we didn't have before. They load containers here, take it to Prince Rupert and send it to China, whereas before they used to load it in rail cars and send it down to Vancouver with uh, BC Rail and so the ratio there is uh, four containers to one rail car but now if you get containers going to Prince Rupert and then they go to China you don't have any rail cars and the more containers you load the less rail cars you need so at some point some guy pushing a pencil says we don't need all these rail cars they sell them off and if they do need them they say they'll lease them and when they go to lease them, they can't get them. They've got a shortage of rail cars. And you can't load lumber to the U.S. in containers. So th- there's so many things that are affected by this that I don't feel 
that the federal and or the provincial government has the expertise to see the big picture and solve the problem. I don't know where they're going to get that knowledge base from because I've been around a long time and I haven't run across too many of them that can see the big picture. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, like the, when you look at it, like, the, you know, basically the, the takeover of CN Rail, of BC Rail, is a part of a continentalist trend that uh, has uh, been developed uh, and aggravated by the role of successive federal governments who basically uh, are putting uh, Canada's strategy, you might say, or or its aim and all this under the thumb of uh, whatever aims the U.S. has. And, of course, for many uh, industries and all this, the the U.S. is not interested in manufacturing and developing in Canada. Uh, In fact, it wants our raw material, but not uh, the the manufactured goods. So so the critical thing for me is that what we need in Canada is a nation-building strategy one that one that uh, focuses more on self-reliance and uh, uh, developing our, our own manufacturing over a period of time. Not to say that this is an easy thing to accomplish; it's not. But at least uh, when you have a name like that, then you have a way of going forward. And right now, uh, the successive governments, federal governments, uh, have put us under the thumb of U.S. interests in so many ways. Yeah, well, one of the things we can look at and should look at is, uh, you know, what we can do locally on a huge scale and create jobs. Now, whether that's root vegetables or some form of manufacturing, but it has to be something uh, to make it work with the containers that, that China needs, as an example. So you can export to them something that they need. I don't know if they eat potatoes or carrots or turnips or whatever, but if they did, it would be a big market for us. And and we're right on the uh, container route through Prince Rupert, and we have access to all kinds of containers. So that could create some sort of a deal. Alberta's got a lot of uh, industry in in Alberta that builds stuff or, you know, uh, uses uh, vegetables for potato chips or french fries or whatever and and they create a lot of jobs and they distribute it all over Saskatchewan, British Columbia and Alberta. All we do is go to the store and buy a bag. We don't we don't we don't know what to do with a potato, how to make a potato chip, but, well, but you maybe it's time we learned. Prince George used to supply all of its own potatoes, isn't that right, Eric? Yep. All yeah. of which? Its own potatoes, root vegetables. Oh yeah, yeah, they used, beets, used to do it all locally for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you know if we're if we're in the the dream and stage of the of the show here, you know I I uh, I like Peter's comments there about a national strategy of kind of self reliance and and building a, a manufacturing base to support ourselves. I think that's going to have to be the future. I think we've got to pull back from you know uh, integration with the global economy. I, I know everything that's made in China is super cheap, and you know we can't even make screwdrivers for ourselves anymore. But I think we've got to try. I think we've got to develop those local industries somehow uh you know how come we don't have a steel mill in northern bc something like that we've got one in edmonton alberta but we have a lot of steel we could get a small one for instance that recycles uh metal we ship we put a lot of metal on trains i I actually where would that metal go i guess it doesn't go to it ends up in portland i learned a lot of it but uh, i'm not sure how it gets there if the line probably goes to valemont and then south through through that way but uh you know, I think we got to start doing more manufacturing and then focus less on these big super ports. I mean, every we, the, 
when we're talking about railroads, like it, it seems like a big objective of public policy and government is to create these big seamless ports to import all this offshore product to basically make it cheaper. You know, as far as a, a nation building strategy goes, that shouldn't be really the goal. We should actually make it more expensive, you know, basically uh, an effective tariff on these imports by, by creating or maintaining, you know, inefficient ports. But instead we make them super efficient to so that we can get the stuff in off the boats cheaper and quicker and undermine all of our local producers in the process. Uh, and then meanwhile, you know, the local producers, they can't even get rail cars. So it's like we're we're bending over backwards for these for these big container ships and these big mass production uh, operations, and then meanwhile our little tailor made producers in Mackenzie can't get real cars. Or you know, like Eric says, if you want to start growing potatoes, well, I don't think it's as easy as as we think it is to get those on a train either. No, it isn't, and uh, you know you have to have a strategy and you have to know how to do it. You have to have you have to have a customer to begin with. You can't just go and start building something unless you know who's going to buy it. But, uh, yeah, there's any number of different ways of looking at what's going on here. But the thing is, <clears throat> these trains that come whistling through here, the 350 million people on the East Coast or something, that's where it's going. That's where the market is. And uh, we don't even register. we got got 360,000 people in north-central B.C., God knows how many of those actually work and how many are retired, how many are not old enough to work. And you start to thin out pretty fast. There's not much here. And if you're going to invest money and you look around, you, well, what are you going to do? You know, We're going to take a break now. How's that? The Seniors Resource Centre has plenty of programs and support services for those 55-plus. An affordable lunch can be delivered through Meals on Wheels, non-medical needs can be covered through Better at Home, and the Housing and Community Navigator can help locate housing and other valuable resources. Call 250-564-5888 for more information or stop by the Prince George Council of Seniors Resource Centre between 9 and 3 Monday through Friday at their new location, 1330 Fifth Avenue. With temperatures very mild and growing from snow to rain, we welcome the final Golden Age Social of the season. The date is Wednesday, March 15th, 2 to 4 at the Prince George Civic Centre. This free event is for seniors 55 or older and our hosts are the City of Prince George, Prince George Civic Centre, Zion Lutheran Church co-hosting with Prince George Council of Seniors. Come on out and enjoy the entertainment, refreshments and great company. Don't miss the Golden Age Social Wednesday, March 15th, 2 to 4 at the Civic Centre. See you there. The downtown branch of your Prince George Public Library is hosting another Games for Grown-Ups event on March 16th, Thursday. The free drop-in event runs from 6 to 7.30 and gives gaming enthusiasts a chance to challenge other players at border video games, meet up with former adversaries, and make new friends or enemies. Games for Grown-Ups runs every second Thursday at the downtown library from 6 to 7.30. Come down on March 16th and let the games begin. The BC Indigenous Provincial Archery Athlete Development Camp is taking registrations. Open to all male and female Indigenous youth born from 2004 through to 2010. The camp is set for April 1st and 2nd in Langley. All Indigenous youth athletes interested in learning more about the sport of archery are invited to attend. Registration and full details are available through iSpark.ca. The BC Indigenous Provincial Archery Athlete Development Camp, April 1st and 2nd in Langley. Registration deadline is March 24th. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. Just want to maybe knock a few other things around, like 
have you been hearing, uh, you know, one another over the next 10 years, another 32 firemen and maybe another 32 policemen. And they, and they talk about the growing population in Prince George. Well, it actually grew 3.7 or 4% over five years. It's 2,500 people. So if you break it down, it's 500 people a year. That's your growth. <clears throat> you can get 500 people out of, uh, just out of the hospitals and births. You lose another four or 500 in deaths. So you might have 350, 400 people actual growth per year in Prince George. That's not very much growth. And it sure isn't the growth that you're going to build a huge industry on. But we're going to get taxed on it because our taxes are already going up this year, 7.4 or 7.2%. And if you're talking about that number of police and that number of uh, fire departments and you're talking about the huge uh, uh, addition they're putting on at the hospital, the regional district's got to pick up $240 million of, of the cost of that regional district hospital. And we're one of the biggest contributors to the regional district which means we're going to get the biggest hit on that tax for that $240 million. So, the, you know, the obvious question is uh, if prices or uh, wages are staying the same or going up marginally compared to the cost, how are we going to pay for this? And I think, you know, that the, the politicians have a responsibility to start now to explain how we're going to pay for the extra police, how we're going to pay for the extra firemen, how we're going to pay for all these services, if we're not creating any jobs, and if we're not going to create any more jobs, then let's say what is it we are going to do. That's what I want to know. What are we going to do? Because you can't keep taxing people because somebody has an idea and uh, we don't make any revenue off it. So who wants to touch on that? Anybody? I'll, uh, I'll do, I'll do Two a minutes. quick, quick little spiel. You know, I, th- I think uh, politicians and city council, I think they need to be a little more critical of the of the claims that we always need to fund every single new police officer uh, that's demanded. I think uh, fire, I think I'd be more liable to, to, to fund fire over police. And for the simple reason is that uh, if you don't have uh, a proper kind of crown council that's taking the real hard criminals off the street, what's the point of having more police? They're just, it's just a revolving door. So... Uh, you know, I think I think we've got enough police in Prince George. Um, I think it's more of a question of how do we deal with uh, how do we deal with people that are doing violent crimes that we're not uh, putting in jail. Uh, how do we deal with mental health issues and homelessness? You know, um, as far as fire, one of the things they said on the radio was that well, Prince George is really spread out, so we need all these these more police officers. And at the same time, we're talking about building a ring road. That's going to create a huge amount of spread out development and just make this problem worse. So, you know, I think it all comes back to like the fact that Prince George is, is a really spread out city and we're growing more spread out. And that needs to be discussion there at the planning department about how we're going to grow and if this is actually a sustainable, uh, model of growth because they're, they're chasing this development, this development figure, right? You heard it on the news the last couple of weeks about how Prince George has got record building permit. Uh, numbers and uh, you know, but at what cost is this? Are we just chasing these numbers to in, increase all these other public costs? Well, as far as the permits go, they don't give you the whole story. They just give you each year. They tell you the uh, the dollar value of the permits. You know, so many permits and six hundred and fifty million dollars 
But they don't tell you that as an example if we used in and Kenworth went up top of the hill at Highway 97 there and built a brand new plant there. There'd be millions of dollars in, uh, you know, for that plant, plus all the permitting. But they also shut down the one on Quinn Street. So, and what happened to that one? There's another outfit that used to be over on Massey moved into the one on Quinn Street, and somebody from somewhere else moved into the one on Massey, and so that's called churning. They're moving around, but at the end of the day, if no new inter- industry comes to town, you just got the same number of deals, some permitting, and, and different locations. And this goes on with a lot of things. You know, I think this. Uh, I can think of a couple more out there that used to be in town and now are out there, and some more will go on Boundary Road from here. But give me a list of the new industries that have located in the last five years, and the industries that you think might locate in the next five years. I'd be interesting to see that list and how many jobs it might create, Peter. Uh, yeah, no, I think what the point that you made here that we need explanations, uh, clear explanations and rationale from uh, the city regarding uh, any uh, dramatic increase in in these positions that have been put forward. I would agree with James, right? I'd probably more t- tend to uh, see where there's a logic behind getting more firefighters and police, right? But... Uh, uh, fundamentally, though, uh, we, we need explanations, clear explanations, uh, uh, within the context of what the projection is, uh, uh, you know, accurate pr- projection as to what the city population is going to be and the, what kind of staffing we need. Well, population is <laughs> next to nothing, really, especially if you trace it from California and go north. Herb? Yeah, one one thing I got uh, from... Um, my, my chat with uh, the mayor of Mackenzie was that uh, their uh, community forest, which is uh, very small, it's only about uh, 1% of the annual allowable cut in Mackenzie, uh, provides almost as much revenue as uh, the uh, pulp mill, the ex-pulp mill uh, did. So that's something maybe that uh, Prince George, uh, just by the nature of it being spread out, uh, it has higher costs and uh, and we have a fairly low uh, population base to support uh, those infrastructure costs. That's another reason why we should be looking at a community forest. That uh, it's a it's a, uh, a source of revenue that uh, would um, maybe mitigate some of the problems that we face in terms of funding. Does anybody feel that uh, our elected officials think that this might be a situation that's critical? If we don't get off our butts and start doing something, like we're going into a, oh. a real sandstorm here. And and as, no matter where you look, it looks like more lost jobs. But you don't see too many. I mean, this well, deal alone, just, just, just sorry, the, uh, the mega project, project's shutting down in the next year and a half or something. We're talking... Eight thousand to twelve thousand jobs going to disappear. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we understand what's what's coming our way. No. Go ahead. No. Well, uh, just uh, just touch on our forestry. We had the future forestry meeting there on Tuesday, and you know, I, I certainly would have liked to have seen more city councilors come to that. It was it was really great to have Mayor Simon Yu there and uh, Councilor Brian Skaken and Councilor uh, Trudy Classen were in attendance. But uh, you know, where's everybody else? Where's where's the yeah? Where's the urgency? And I, and I think we got to start having more unity on our between our leadership and uh, you know other other leaders in town focusing on some solutions here. 
I can jokingly say that we run into trouble for the little train in the park getting it fixed so it could run. So I don't know how we're going to fix two big railways. <laughs> anyway, that'll be it. I want to thank everybody for listening today. Thank my panel, and uh, we'll see you next Monday. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFISFM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society.